Well, that's powerful stuff. That video uh, describes many of the events that Christians all around the world will commemorate later this week on Good Friday. In many ways, the events really speak for themselves. And in fact, uh, in my own spiritual journey, it was on Good Friday, about 17 years ago, uh, that was the moment where I really gave my life to Jesus and committed to following him for the rest of my life. It was on Good Friday, I was at an event on my college campus commemorating the events. And somebody spoke that day, but honestly, I don't remember a thing that they said. What I do remember is just hearing the words, hearing the accounts, the description of what Jesus did what he suffered on our behalf, and then kind of singing some songs uh, to describe what it meant that Jesus died for us. And and that, for me, was was enough. I was really overcome by it. So uh, later on today, we'll have some space, a little more time than we normally take at the end of our service, to just to worship, to respond in song, and to really kind of... um, meditate and and marvel at Jesus and who he is. In many ways, that's the most appropriate thing that we can do. But that being said, I will say a few things today. We are in the middle of a sermon series. We're in week six now of a series called We Believe, where we are exploring the Apostles' Creed, kind of an ancient declaration of the core things that Christians believe, that Christians have been saying for many, many centuries now at this point, and continuing to today. So we've been going through that. The last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus, what it means that he is Lord, what it means that he is God, that he is eternal, that he is uh, all-powerful. And yet, last week, we looked at the miracle that, that God himself stepped into our human condition, became a man, that he's both God and human, and lived a perfect life uh, that none of us have ever lived before. Uh, and so now, we're moving into the part of the creed that affirms that this same Jesus we've been talking about suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So he didn't just come to take on our human form and live a perfect life, but this is a really critical part of what he came to do. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And these events, these uh, uh, events that are described here, his suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial, they are described at length and in detail in all four of the gospel stories. In fact, most of the gospels, they're kind of humming along, getting through a lot of stuff, and then they slow down and really uh, focus on the final days of Jesus' uh, time on earth. And they really focus on it, and those accounts are worth reading and spending some time this week as we uh, look forward to Easter, just reading and meditating on those accounts in the gospels. But our main scripture today, we're going to actually go back about 700 years before those events ever took place uh, and look at a passage written by the prophet Isaiah. So if you've got your Bibles or a Bible app and uh, you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, we're going to start at verse 13, Isaiah 52 verse 13 and read all the way through Isaiah 53. Now, last week Pastor Tom told us that Jesus fulfilled over 300 different Old Testament prophecies made about him, over 300, and there's perhaps none more profound than this one that we're about to read, uh, written by Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in Israel who called out a lot of the sin and evil and brokenness both within Israel and beyond it, but Isaiah also spoke a lot of words of hope about God ultimately delivering his people from that sin and evil and brokenness. And so again, he wrote this about 700 years prior to the events uh, that we're talking about today, looking forward to Jesus. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. 
For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In many ways, that could be the whole sermon right there. That passage, Isaiah brilliantly describes both the what and the why of Jesus' suffering and death. He describes in so much detail many of the events that took place and what it was like. And he also helps us to understand why those things are significant. We have both the what and the why. Isaiah also hints that the sufferings and and the death of Jesus is not the end of the story, and I so want to skip forward to next week when we get to Easter, but we're not going to do that. We're going to stay right where we are and talk about the suffering and death of Jesus, why, uh, why that was significant. Isaiah helps us to understand the depth of what Jesus suffered for us. In doing so, he helps us to understand also the depth of our own sin and brokenness, but also to understand the depth of God's love for us. So let's first look at the depth of Jesus' suffering. This won't be particularly fun or pleasant to do, but it's important that we do it. Because maybe you're new to all this. Maybe you're just uh, exploring faith, exploring what it means to be a Christian. You've never actually thought much about the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and what actually happened. Or maybe you're like me. I grew up in a church tradition where we recited the Apostles' Creed week after week, and I became an expert at just mouthing the words while thinking about something else entirely. 
So I would just kind of say the word, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of our Lord. And meanwhile, I'd be thinking about baseball or girls or I'd be people watching in the, in the pews. And I wonder if that's that guy's real hair or if he's wearing a piece. I don't know. So you know, I, became, I became a pro at that sort of thing. And you know, the point is, hundreds of times I recited these words. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried without ever really thinking about them or letting them impact me in a meaningful way. And maybe that's not you, but you have been in, in church in one form or another for some length of time, and you just get so used to hearing things like, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died on the cross, and you know, it just becomes words after a while. It kind of bounces off of us. We get so used to it, so familiar with those kind of words, Jesus died on the cross, that you know, it maybe doesn't impact us all the time. And all of us now, no matter our church background, are historically removed from the reality of crucifixion. Like, thankfully, it's not something that takes place in our society anymore, so it may not be all that vivid to us. We're coming up on a year now since the, the terrible events of the Boston Marathon bombing that took place last year, and, and it's in the news a lot now, and you hear people just refer to it over and over and offhandedly, and you get a little bit numb to it, oh, Boston Marathon bombing, Boston Marathon bombing, and, and to some people it's just sort of words, but I'll tell you, if you were there, if you were at that finish line, if you were affected personally by those events, they're not just words, but you hear those words, and it conjures up horrible images terrible memories of the carnage and terror that took place that day, uh, those words elicit a response, a visceral response in you. They're not just words. And it would have been similar for the earliest Christians, people who heard the words of the Apostles' Creed and were living in the shadow of the Roman Empire. They wouldn't have been just words to them. They would have known exactly what it meant for someone to suffer under a Roman ruler like Pontius Pilate, for someone to be crucified, die, and be buried. It wouldn't be just words to them. They, they, many of them probably would have witnessed the crucifixion because crucifixion was designed to be a very public and visible form of torture and execution, both to humiliate and shame the victim, but also to be a warning to the public at large. So these people, the early Christians, would have understood the depth of Jesus' suffering from these words, and it's important that we do too. So let's just do a quick word study through the passage that I read in Isaiah and, and look at just some of the words that Isaiah uses. They should be up on the screen. There we go. There's some of them. Also, appalled at him, disfigured, marred beyond human likeness, despised, rejected, suffering, pain, punished, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounds, oppressed, grave, death. And many of these are repeated in the passage. It's not a very long passage, so Isaiah is making it perfectly clear uh, Jesus suffered in some deep and profound ways. He captures the idea of Jesus' suffering, the depth of his suffering, very vividly. And Isaiah wrote this before crucifixion was even invented. But by the time of Jesus, by the time he came along, the Romans had honed and perfected the art and practice of crucifixion so as to accomplish all of these terrible forms of suffering in one excruciating process. And it was excruciating. In fact, our word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciatus, which means literally out of the cross. From the gospel accounts and from uh, general knowledge of the Roman practice, uh, we can know this about what Jesus suffered. There's several things, and some of this is from a study done by the Mayo Clinic describing crucifixion and its impact. So we know that Jesus was blindfolded and taunted while he was blindfolded, he was punched in the face and spit on. We know he had a crown of thorns pressed into his head and then was further taunted and mocked, sarcastically worshipped. 
We know that Jesus was severely flogged, which would have meant he was stripped of his clothes and tied to a post and repeatedly struck with a leather whip with lead and bones at the end of it, designed to tear into his flesh. The intention was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. So by the time Jesus even went to the cross, he would have already experienced heavy blood loss and was probably in a mild state of shock because his flogging was particularly severe. And after that, he was covered in a robe, was put all over his skin and forced to carry his cross. He was further humiliated and taunted. The fact that he needed help to carry his cross indicates an especially harsh flogging. Then the robe that was put on him was stripped off of him to shamefully expose him to onlookers and further open his wounds. He was then nailed to a wooden cross using five to seven inch iron spikes. It would have been driven through his feet and through his wrist. As that was done, they would have hit nerves in a way that produced bolts of fiery pain in both arms. For several hours, he hung on that cross, being further mocked and, and taunted, as breathing became more and more difficult and painful with every breath. It took victims anywhere from a few hours to a few days to die from crucifixion. The fact that Jesus died in a matter of hours again points to an especially severe torture and flogging beforehand. There are a few causes of death from crucifixion, usually some combination of hypovolemic shock, asphyxia from not being able to breathe anymore, and sometimes a traumatic cardiac event. And the fact that the Gospels tell us Jesus cried out and perished suddenly indicates perhaps the cardiac event was part of it for him. Either way, no one survived crucifixion. It was designed not only to humiliate and torture, but ultimately to kill. No one survived it, and neither did Jesus. After he died, his body was stabbed with a spear to verify that he was really dead. Then he was placed in a securely sealed tomb. Beyond all this, and maybe even worst of all, is a depth of suffering that none of us could ever understand, which was being completely innocent in all of this and yet treated as a guilty one, and one who had known and been intimate with God and in union with God for all eternity, suddenly experiencing the wrath and anger and judgment of God. Now, it's not comfortable to hear any of this, I know, any more than it's comfortable to say it. But it's important to the degree that we can to recognize the depth of Jesus' suffering. For one, understanding the depth of his suffering helps us to understand the depth of our sin and brokenness as human beings. Again, Isaiah describes both the what and the why of Jesus' suffering and death. And he makes very clear correlations between our sin and his pain. Verse 4, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 8, for the transgression of my people he was punished. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. And verse 6, I think, is on a slide. Uh, it's kind of a, a key verse in all of this passage that we read. Let's read that together. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is making it abundantly clear. There's no denying the correlation between our sin and brokenness and the pain and suffering that Jesus endured. It's an old hymn says, Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. 
And we might ask, well, gosh, are we really that bad so as to warrant this? And the answer is yes. I'm sorry to say we are. I've had people ask me, you know, if God is loving and forgiving, if he wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just forgive us then? You know, why not just, you know, wipe the slate clean and and move on? Why all this, you know, gruesome stuff about the cross? Well, for one, that sounds really great if you're the perpetrator of evil, but if you've been the victim of evil, uh, you know that to just kind of wipe the slate clean and, and move on is not actually an act of love on God's part at all. But secondly, Common sense tells us that any real forgiveness comes at a true cost. So if I lend you a hundred bucks, which um, I'm not planning to, but if I loaned you a hundred bucks and you didn't pay me back, I could forgive you and you would be totally forgiven. You'd be totally off the hook, totally free. But that would cost me a hundred bucks. I would bear that cost. Or if somebody seriously hurts you and wrongs you in a way that you know, really leaves you hurt and angry, and that person really deserves some kind of payback and punishment, you could forgive them, and they would really be forgiven. They would really be free. They would really be off the hook. But it would cost you the right to ever get revenge, the right to hold a grudge any longer, the right to hold it over them or to get any kind of payback. You would bear that cost yourself. Forgiveness is costly. And when we see what it costs Jesus, we're confronted with just how deep our sin and brokenness as a race really runs. We've caused incredible damage to each other, to people close to us, to people far away, to the planet, by what we've done and what we've not done. We're part of and contribute to systems and structures that are tainted by evil and wickedness. We're born with a propensity to sin, such that even our involuntary thoughts and inclinations aren't what God would have them be a lot of the time. And ultimately, our sin is less about a particular set of do's and don'ts and what we successfully do or don't do, but it's ultimately a relational dynamic between us and God, such that when we sin or are in a sinful condition, it amounts to a rejection of the perfect and beautiful and wonderful God who made us and gives us life and loves us. We all have essentially spit in his face, much as the Roman soldiers spit on the physical face of Jesus. Now, it can be hard to admit this. It can be scary to admit the depth of our guilt and our shame. Guilt pertaining to kind of the damage we've caused, what we've done, what we've not done. Shame pertaining to just who we are as fundamentally uh, flawed and corrupted and broken people. It can be hard and scary to face the depth of our guilt and shame. If we don't know a power greater than those things. It can be terrifying, but we do know a power greater than the depth of our guilt and shame. I have a close friend who has known Jesus for a really long time. He's a great guy. He's done a lot of of ministry work and and recently has made some really, really terrible mistakes um, that anyone would admit are so, and uh, he's caused a lot of pain to his family and loved ones and people close to him, and and he's been just racked with guilt over that, but also shame over just the fact that I mean, he really knows better and kind of did these things anyway, and he's looking around and seeing the damage that's been caused. And, um, and we've been meeting together to talk, and um, the first time we met, he said to me, um, hey, you know, this is what happened. Uh, do you want to just punch me in the face? And I said, well, um, 
maybe a little, but that won't, that won't help anything. That won't cause anything. Um, and he's also said things to me like, gosh, you know, sometimes I wish I could just uh, stand up and have, you know, all the people I've hurt, my, my loved ones and, and cl- people close to me just kind of grab stones and just stone me. And, and I've kind of had to wrestle with that and figure out how to respond to him. And I thought, and he, I said, well, what do you think Jesus would do? He's like, oh, I know Jesus probably wouldn't stone me. And I said, well, yeah, you know, you know the right answers, but, but here's why. It's because you, ha- you have a rightful sense that you have done wrong and, there, and that a punishment would be proper and fair and that you probably deserve something like that. But the reason Jesus will let you go is because he took that punishment on himself. He was punched in the face by people uh, who tortured him. He was crushed and killed on your behalf. So, so really, do you trust that that's enough? Do you trust that that's enough? And that can be hard, you know, when you've made mistakes after walking with Jesus for a long time. But, you know, the depth of his suffering proves the depth of his love and the depth of the effectiveness of what he did on our behalf. It's enough to cover everything. We can face the full weight of our guilt and shame because we know a power greater than it. Corey Ten Boom was a Christian who saw the horrors of the Holocaust up close and personal, and she was fond of saying, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. She ought to know, and my friend is coming to know, and I'm coming to know, And any Christian ought to know that however deep the depth of the pit of our sin and shame and and guilt is, God's love is deeper still. So we don't have to be afraid to face it. We don't have to be afraid to face the damage we've done. We don't have to be afraid to face our our sin and our shame. We don't have to hide. We don't have to uh, atone for our brokenness. Often Christians are, are even more reluctant than the average person to admit that there's something wrong with us. And it really should not be so. We ought to be the first to say so, the first to admit that we're messed up and we make mistakes because we know that there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And we see it at the cross. At the cross, we see the depth of Jesus' suffering. In doing so, we see the depth of our sin, but we don't need to hide from it because we also see the depth of God's love for us. Yes, we see the cost of our sin, but the good news is that God in Christ has taken all of that cost upon himself. Every bit of it. The one human being who contributed absolutely nothing to the damage and evil and wickedness in our world assumed the punishment for all of it so that we can really be free and forgiven. The one person, Jesus, who lived a perfect life offered that life as a sacrifice on our behalf of all of us who could never offer a perfect life to God on our own. And so that we can come before God now without shame and without hiding. The one man who never spit on God's face, but obeyed him perfectly and enjoyed union with him, suffered the wrath of God's enemies. So that we who were God's enemies can now be God's friends. Jesus, who was God himself, eternal and perfect and all-powerful, assumed the lowest possible position that a human being could ever find themselves in so that we, with him, could be lifted up and delivered from the deepest of pits that we find ourselves in. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. And you want to know what's really amazing besides that? It's that Jesus chose to do all this willingly. Willingly. Because of his love for us. 
And sometimes people ask, well, why did Jesus have to die in such a way? Why did he have to die? And well, the truth is, he didn't. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to do anything. But he chose to. He chose to. He gave himself up. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And we see in Isaiah and in the gospel accounts, Jesus willingly giving himself up and choosing to die on our behalf. If you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it's a great movie. There's a a scene at the very, very beginning where uh, our main character, George Bailey, he's in a deep pit, so to speak. A lot of trouble. People are praying on his behalf. So you see all these prayers going up to heaven and up to God on behalf of George Bailey. And up in heaven, they hear these prayers. And then there's a conversation. I don't know if it's God or angels. Um, They kind of hear all these prayers, help out George. and, And someone says, well, looks like we'll have to send someone down. Now, I love It's a Wonderful Life, but I hope we don't see God that way. It's easy to see God that way, but we can't see God that way. As if he kind of observed our human predicament and, and heard our cries and was like, well, looks like we'll have to send someone down. As if he had to or he didn't know what to do really or his hands were tied or his hand was forced or he was somehow reluctant in any way. No, God the Father willingly gave his son Jesus and his son Jesus willingly gave his life for us. He chose to because he loves us. The book of Romans tells us that the kindness of God leads to our repentance. This is a fancy word for a complete change and turning around in our lives. It's not the other way around. It's not that our repentance leads to the kindness of God. As if if we cry hard enough and are sorry enough and amend our ways enough or get it together that then God will be nice to us. No, it's the complete other way around. God's kindness comes first. He leads with his kindness. He always has. It's not that he's just stuck in some rut that he doesn't know how to get out of or reluctant in any way, but from the very beginning, God has led with his kindness. In Genesis chapter 3, the very first time that human beings mess up, the very first time Adam and Eve are hiding and they're, they're hiding from God. They're hiding from each other. They can't move on. God comes to them. He calls out to them. He covers their nakedness and covers their shame. God takes the initiative. They didn't do anything. They weren't even trying to get out of the mess. God came to them. And so it continues throughout the whole Old Testament. People reject God. They turn away from God. They mess up. And they don't really do anything right to to get back on track. But God comes to them. God institutes ways that they can know them. God speaks to them. God offers ways that he can be known. And all of these things ultimately point to Jesus, to these events that we've looked at today. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He did not wait for us to get things together. He did not wait for us to be sufficiently sorry. He did not even wait for us to ask. He took it upon himself to choose and to willingly do this on our behalf. In Romans 5, 8, let's read this together. This kind of sums this up. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to get our act together, did not wait for us to even turn to him and ask, but while we were still sinners, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. These events, these truths that happened, they are at the heart of the biblical story, and they're at the heart of the Apostles' Creed. They're core to what Christians have believed and proclaimed since the very beginning. Every organization, every movement has some kind of symbol, some kind of logo. If we can go to the next slide. 
And this is the one that Christians chose, a cross, uh, a Roman instrument of torture and execution. That is our, our logo, our symbol, so to speak. And the Christian me- message is a proclamation of the cross, a proclamation of God's kindness that he's shown us and what he has given and done on our behalf. And we're invited to receive and trust in what Jesus has done for us. So this morning, my friends, I invite you to receive and to put your trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Maybe you've never done that before. And while there is no time like the present, there's no day like today, there's really nothing else you've got to do and no waiting period you've got to go through, you can receive and put your trust in what Jesus has done for you today. You can just receive it as a free gift You simply just need to acknowledge that you have sinned, fallen short of God, which would make you like any other human being who's ever lived. Acknowledge that your relationship with God is broken, but that he has taken it upon himself to make it right. And acknowledge that in Jesus, he has has done all that it takes to make you right with God, and you just simply receive that. Free of charge. But maybe you've been a Christian for some length of time, however long or short, but there are still ways... That you're taking it upon yourself to overcome some guilt and shame in your life. You're taking it upon yourself to justify yourself. Something maybe recent or something you've been carrying for a really long time. You're taking it upon yourself to try to atone for something you've done wrong. Some thing about you that's just broken. You're trying to prove yourself worthy or lovable or valuable in the sight of God or yourself or to someone else who said something to you once. You're trying to, to look good. You're, maybe even with religious activity, you're trying to justify yourself or to atone for things or to cover up your brokenness or your shame either by performance or, or by hiding. And well, we all do these things, but the invitation this morning is just stop. Look to the cross. The cross invites us to just stop trying to justify ourselves, to stop trying to prove anything, to stop trying to atone or hide or overcome. Because A, we can't, and B, we don't have to. It's all been done for us. And all of us here, whether you've never put your trust in Jesus or whether there's a, a, a new invitation to do so, I just invite you to receive what Christ has done for you today and to put your trust in what he's done for you. But he also invites us to, to live it, not just receive it, but to live the cross. Again, the cross is our, our symbol. It's our logo. It's at the heart of Christian faith. It's something to receive, but also something to reflect in the lives that God calls us to. Jesus made it abundantly clear to his followers that not only was he going to suffer and die, but that his followers' lives would also be marked by that kind of sacrificial love. That The cross would be the mark of the Christian life that his followers live. Sacrificial love is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Look with me at 1 John uh, 3.16. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Sacrificial love is at the heart of the Christian life. It's what we are to receive. It's what we are to live out of and what we are to reflect. And the cool thing we see here is that Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not already done for us to an even greater degree. Jesus will ask nothing of you that he has not already done for you. 
Does he ask you to love your enemies? He loved us while we were still God's enemies. Does he ask you to show kindness and to forgive people in your life who really don't deserve it? He did the same for us, showing us kindness while we were still at odds with God. Does he ask you to enter into the damage of this world and and the mess of this world and messy situations to bring hope and redemption? Well, he entered into the very worst of the human experience and endured the very worst damage that human beings can do in order to bring us redemption and new life. Does he call you to surrender your own comfort or pleasures or convenience in any way? He surrendered all his rights gave his whole life, all of his comforts on behalf of us. Jesus asked for our whole lives to be committed to him. He asked for our whole lives, but that doesn't need to be scary because he's already given his whole life, his whole perfect life to us. Jesus asked for 100% commitment, which is a scary word these days, commitment. We don't ever have to worry about whether God will be there for us. He's demonstrated the full extent of his commitment to us. At the cross, we see he had held back absolutely nothing of himself from us. Whatever Jesus asks of you, we're free to give it because he's already freely given us everything. So we'll have some space now to respond to these things. Uh, So if the worship team can kind of get back in your in your place. We'll just have some space to, to respond with more song and worship. We'll also take communion together. But I want to give us some space to respond. Um, and I'll pray for, for us in a bit. But again, um, I want to invite you to really think about what it means to put your trust and receive what Jesus has done for you. And so if you would, if you could just kind of close your eyes for a moment of prayer. Uh, we don't always do this here at the journey, but you know, based on what we've just looked at, it, it just seems appropriate to make the invitation. If you have, if you've never really received what Jesus has done for you, if you've never said yes to that free gift of new life, if you've never uh, put your trust in what He has done for you, let this be the day that you do that. Let this be the moment. He's done it all. And you simply just need to receive. So if that is you, you could just pray this. Um, I'll pray and you can kind of repeat after me. Father God, thank you that you created me, that you love me, that despite how I've turned uh, from you, you've pursued me and pursue me with your love. I acknowledge that I am broken, that I have failed, that I have sinned, and I'm fundamentally not right. I acknowledge that you and your son Jesus paid the full penalty for all I've done. I choose to receive that gift and stop justifying myself in any other way. And I say yes to the new life that you offer me. I commit myself to you. And again, if everyone's eyes are still closed, if you've, if you've prayed that or if that's you, if that's where you're at, you can just put your hand up real quick.
Praise God. Praise God. And if you are a Christian, if you're someone who's heard this stuff before and said yes to it on some level, but you are still trying to justify yourself, prove yourself, or atone for something in some way other than just receiving what Christ has done for you, invite you to name that thing before him. and receive his free gift to you. And as we reflect on the cross and you sense that God is calling you to some form of sacrificial love, some form of dying to yourself or to your comforts or pleasures, just reflect on what he has already done. That's not anything you have to do to make yourself right with him. He's already made everything right with him so you can freely give. And know that he's with you in whatever place of sacrifice or service or love he would call you to. So Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done on our behalf. We thank you that it is all sufficient for everything past, present, and future. We thank you that you took it all upon yourself, that which we could not do for ourselves. We readily admit, Lord, that we are broken, but we readily receive all the more your great love for us, the chance to stand before you, not on our own merit, but because of what Christ has done. So we do. We come before you now. We pray you'd meet us powerfully in this place as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to have some more space to worship as we do if the communion servers and the prayer ministers could come up. We're going to just take time to receive communion, which is another kind of symbol that Jesus left with us uh, that Christians have been doing together since the very beginning where we take bread and wine as symbols of his body and blood broken for us as a way to, to remember him together and receive anew what he's done for us. So we'll have everyone just kind of come forward, take a piece of the bread, which is gluten-free for everyone, and dip it in the juice. And also there'll be people on either side who are willing to pray with you and pray for you. So if you want to go beyond just having me kind of pray for you from up here and just have someone actually pray with you, maybe pray a prayer of blessing over you. If you've made some kind of commitment to Jesus today, uh, it's really good to tell someone and have them just sort of pray for you and bless you in that. Uh, If there's something that you're wanting to just sort of lay down or or give up trying to atone for yourself, uh, someone could pray a prayer of forgiveness over you or anything else at all really that is a need or going on in your life. Uh, folks would be more than happy to pray with you. So I will turn it on back over. Let's uh, worship God together.